This is an AMI podcast. Before I get started, I wanted to acknowledge that this podcast was produced and hosted on the unceded ancestral and traditional lands of the Squamish, the Musqueam, and the Tsleil-Waututh peoples, and I feel truly honored to live, to work, and to play on these beautiful lands. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Accessing Art with Amy. I'm your host, Amy Amanti. My pronouns are she, hers. Sir Daniel and Lady Linda met in high school, and they fell in love with each other, but they also fell in love with the Renaissance period. Today, they join us from their home in Three Hills, Alberta, where they have set up a really unique, accessible, and immersive Renaissance experience for their guests. Now, you may be asking yourself, hey, Amy, does this constitute as art? After all, this is a podcast on the intersection of art and disability. But I think what you'll find here is that there's a ton of art to explore. So Lady Linda lives with a disability, and she really does a lot of the legwork. She does a lot of the cooking from scratch of these large Renaissance-style feasts that get served in their great hall. There's also arts and crafts to explore on the grounds as a guest traditional to the Renaissance period. And Lady Linda also designs, sews, and carefully hand embroiders each of the costumes that really give the guests an immersive and enriching experience. So come explore good nights, and I think you'll find something for everybody. I'm Sir Daniel. And I'm Lady Linda of Good Nights Entertainment. Welcome, Sir Daniel. Welcome, Lady Linda. So excited to have you both on the podcast today. Thank you. You both do something rather unique, and I'm really excited to share with our audience what it is you do. So, uh, Sir Daniel, let's just start with you. What is it that you are doing um, in terms of, you have a Renaissance B&B, so I'd like you to kind of unpack that for us. Sure. Well, it's it's, it's a kind of a uh, an odd and, and very unique um, undertaking we have here. And so we have a, a medieval themed bed and breakfast, which is essentially um, what they now call glamping. So we have a bunch of uh, large medieval tents that people can come and stay in. And we have good beds in them and all the linens and, you know, it's off the ground. It's kind of, it's like, like camping, but without all the, you know, sleeping on the ground kind of thing. Right. And so people don't have to bring much of anything. And then we have lots of activities we do at the same time for people. I love it. So, what are the what are some of the things that that uh, that you offer to guests that come and and spend a night with you at Good Nights? Well, first of all, they get uh, they get a costume to wear. We have costumes. We have over three hundred costumes, a lot of which uh, Lady Linda has made. So they get a costume to wear, a nice wool warm cloak to wear. Uh, we give them breakfast every morning at their tent. Um, they get uh, activities like archery, uh, leather crafting, some embroidery classes, a swords and chivalry class. Um, and uh, if they stay on a weekend, they also get a full medieval feast. Oh, all five courses. And I, I do all the cooking, every single bit of it. And most of it is made from scratch. I make my own bread and, oh. all, and my own soup and everything like that. And I can do that by myself for about up to 50 people. Oh, my gosh. We have more than I just get a little help. <laughs> we bring people in to help with the serving of the feast. But, uh, yeah, Linda does all the all the behind-the-scenes stuff in the kitchen. Okay. 
so much to unpack here, and I'm really excited to get into this, and, and I'm kind of excited to book myself a stay at Good Nights, too. Um, so let's, Linda, let's just unpack. So first of all, a medieval five-course feast, and a part of me is wondering what makes it medieval. Is it the types of foods that you create? So share with us, you know, what kinds of foods you serve. Sure. Um, a, a feast is much different from a buffet. As far as I'm concerned, the buffet is not medieval. I know a lot of places do that. But so we ah. start off with um, fresh homemade bread and butter. And then uh, we usually do a platter of cheese and pickles and figs and all kinds of things like that. And then we do my version of a medieval salad, which is two kinds of grapes, tomatoes, radishes, um, occasionally some other things. If if I really can, it's the right time of the year. I put in some pretty edible flowers. So the next course is the meat course, and we have gigantic roasted turkey legs. They're smoked by Sir Daniel, and mm. they are fantastic. So then uh, I do dessert, and I do a bread pudding, again, from scratch, or I do uh, some kind of crisp, like I do strawberry and rhubarb. I have rhubarb here, so I grow lots of it. I can usually keep up or apples. So it just depends on the time of year. The other thing that makes it a medieval feast is we have a dedicated feast hall. In fact, we have two feast halls. Um, and one of them sits up to about 60 people and it's decorated with banners and shields and, and all kinds of neat things. And so people sit around on trestle, at trestle tables, which are wooden tables and we decorate the tables with candles and, and they get a, they get what's called a trencher to eat off of. So this is a wooden platter. Uh, and originally in the day, they would get um, a husk of bread and they would eat off the husk of bread. And then at the end of the feast, this husk of bread would have absorbed all the juices and everything. Well, that was given away to the poor, um, unfortunate, who would get that for their meal instead. Um, and so we try to theme it and, and give a little bit of history during the feast. We do have uh -huh. a little bit of entertainment, some storytelling um, for our for our, our royal feast, which are our fancier ones. We have an entertainer comes in, um, a lute player, a harpist. Uh, and just we let people and it's not it's not a rush meal. This is slow food. So it happens yeah. over a period of about three hours. Um, so we bring each course in separately. We let people enjoy the course, have a little bit of time to visit with their new and old friends and just uh, uh, enjoy the enjoy the, the stepping back in time in that relaxed period to have uh, time with a meal, which we don't generally do. So it's it's really fun. And, and we don't mind if kids in between courses get up and run around, which parents are like, oh, no, you got to stay at the table. But no, with a, with a feast, it's all about taking time and spending time with, with the food and with the people around you. There's so often these days that, that we're all eating fast food. So we like to say this is slow food. I love that. It's also a very almost European way of doing things, right? Um, is to, to, to savor the moment and cherish the, not only the food, but the people that you're with, uh, when you're enjoying this food, which is also part of the experience. Um, I want to talk a bit about the costumes because right off the bat, you mentioned that you had, you know, 300 plus costumes in, in, in stock. First of all, wondering, I mean, you must have a huge space to be able to store all of this stuff, but also wondering about the creation of the costumes, where they come from, who makes them, all that kind of stuff. I've got my costumes from all kinds of different places. A couple of um, costume shops that were closing down, I bought their stock. I um, I make the more simple ones usually because when you come out, you get a 
feast wear for to wear at the feast and you get a day wear because they're completely different. You don't want to be running around in a heavy velvet gown. So I make most of the day wear. I take linen or cotton and I make just a very simple shift. And then you put a belt around it. So again, it's cool. It's very easy to slip in and out of. And that's the thing. We get some really um, like hot days. So <laughs> I, I definitely do a lot of sewing. I usually start sewing in about January and finish in about April every year. And so Linda, uh, Lady Linda, pardon me. Give the respect where it's due. <laughs> I'll forgive you for that. <laughs> uh, Lady Linda, you, you you also live with disability. And so because, you know, we're, we're talking about the intersection of, of this unique art form and, and disability, I wonder um, if you can share with me a little bit about what the process is like for you to, I don't know, uh, navigate around disability in what you do. Mm. Well, that's a good question. So I use a wheelchair. I have been for about 25 years. I had uh, polio when I was a child. So I have uh, wheelchairs stashed everywhere, one in the car, one in the feast hall, <laughs> and one in the house. <laughs> and so I, I have a scooter, a really good scooter to get me around the site because it's a rather large site. And so that's what I used to get around there. And I have a wheelchair stored in the kitchen. So what I love about my kitchen, um, it's actually way better for me to use the commercial kitchen than the uh, one in the house because we had the commercial kitchen specially made for me. So all the countertops are where I can get at them easily. Uh, things slip out. And, and it's really important to have a good environment when you're doing all all that much uh, chopping and, and everything you need to do. So yeah, that's I think that's about it. And what about with, with the costume making? Are there any, you know, adaptations that you've discovered, you know, make your life a little more comfortable when you're doing those activities? I make a lot of different lengths of dresses because you don't want something that's going to be getting around your ankle. So I have a really good variety of costumes. And usually what I do throughout the winter is I embroider the costumes. So I spend, probably takes me four or five hours just to embroider the simple dress. And but I love it. Like you, you probably wouldn't even notice it was hand embroidered unless you looked at it. But to me, it's an important detail. And I love giving that to our guests. Mm. And I wonder, too, because you're a wheelchair user, um, what kind of accessibility you have on this, you know, because I, when I think about glamping, I don't think about that being overly accessible for wheelchair users or for anybody that may live with a disability. But I think you've probably thought about that. So what does that look like on your on your property? Yeah, so so we have thought about that. I I want our our site to be anyone with any kind of disability can use it and be comfortable and have a great time. So all of our tents have wooden floors in them. And then they're not the wooden floors are maybe six inches off the ground. So I put a we put a ramp up to almost all the tents. We have one tent that we advertise as not accessible but we have seven tents that are and it's really easy to get in and out of the tents and there's lots of room to to move around our bathrooms are huge so that's not a problem to get around in there too and yeah I, I, I think that's mainly what we've done and the feast halls are accessible as well right 
makes a makes a big difference if you've got you know cutouts in the tables to pull wheelchairs up to or or uh, ramps to get in and out of of the. Uh, it's just it's so exciting to me because I'm thinking of this these glamping tents kind of like mini yurts or. Um, uh, so again, it's not something that you think about the access with the camping environment, but you've thought about that, which is why I think that, that this art form that you all have created in your own backyard, so to speak, is, um, friendly for everybody. And I so appreciate that as being a person that lives with a disability and having friends that live with disabilities. And it's like, when you think about things that you want to do with groups of people, um, and oftentimes, you know, hotels aren't even accessible or places that you go aren't. So I really appreciate the forethought in that. And of course, that comes from lived experience. Yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> I've been told at restaurants that I'm a fire hazard. So <laughs> there's, all, there's all kinds of interesting things you get when you uh, live a little bit different life. So no, it's, it's fine. Yeah. But we have our, we actually have one very large tent. So it's two tents one on either end and it's got a big hallway in between so all that's accessible but what's nice about it is we can put cots in the hallway so we can actually sleep eight people in that tent so that you mentioned families and friends so if you a couple two couples want to come together they have a couple kids so that's we uh our place is very family friendly friendly it's very important to us to to um you know keep it for everyone and i know what Parents have often said to us after uh, they've arrived for a while, they said, you know, my kid's not even looking at their device. They're just playing outside and screaming and running. And I love that. That's honestly, for me, probably the very best thing I've, I've heard in the years that we are here. We had one little boy that came out from the States. They'd just gone to Disneyland. And he said, wow, this is way better than Disneyland. I thought, what bigger compliment can you get from a from a 12 year old than that. <laughs> right. From the mouths of babes. That's so lovely to hear. Uh, Sir Daniel, I'm wondering if you'll share with us a little more about um, the different sort of crafts and stuff. You started at the top by rolling off a bunch of activities that are provided, but uh, maybe go into some details of a few of them that relate to the Renaissance period and, and maybe how you've adapted those to be accessible for folks. Yeah, so one of the one of the crafts that we usually do, uh, we've been doing since the beginning. Although last year in 2020 we had to curtail it, is uh, leather craft, uh, where people can come in and they get to learn some basic skills on leather craft. Uh, we teach them about tooling leather, about the basic constructions of things like a, a pouch or something like that. Um, and so we've got we've got again tables which people can roll up to or sit at and do. Um, and it's a very tactile. So whether you're visually impaired or whether you, you, you know, need some extra help, we're there to help with that. Um, and so people learn their way through this and they, they walk away with a, you know, a, a something, a little memento, a, a bracelet or a bookmark, or if they're there for longer, they could make themselves a pouch. So we've done all this. And so that's one of the crafts that we do. Um, Lady Linda also teaches embroidery classes for, um, Usually the ladies, but we've also had sometimes the whole family, like men will sit down and take the embroidery class and they walk away. It's like, wow, this is really fun. I like this. And um, uh, so we try to adapt what we do uh, so that it's, it's accessible to everyone. I mean, we don't specifically have 
the disabled mar- people as a market, but we really we want to make sure that when they come, whether they're elderly coming as a family, a grandmother that needs a little bit of help getting around, or someone that that needs a lot more. Uh, so we want to make sure that they all feel comfortable coming to our to our uh, venue and that they they enjoy have a good enjoyable time. Because for us, the, the the real thing that we really want is that people can come and have fantastic experience we really provide them what we what we hope to be is an immersive experience but we want them to have the the best quality experience and go away with lifelong memories um, and that that's what that's one of the things that people come back and say you know like like a year or two later the kids are still talking about that we have to come back and so that's really neat in terms of your your clientele your patronage um do you have people that come back sort of regularly season after season or do you get a lot of newcomers or is it just like a whole variety of folks well we get a both um what we we when we first started doing it we thought well people are going to come once and then they're not going to come back but we've got some families and couples that come back year after year um they just and, and so you know, keep saying, wow, that's great. I said, you know, we thought it was really awesome when we came the first time, but every time we come, it just keeps getting better. It's like, oh, really? Well, that's great to hear because, you know, we, we want to make sure we're continuously improving and getting better and providing them something different every time. I know the people, we've got this family that comes and there's six kids or four kids and two adults. And, and they said, this is the only place we can go because we can't go camping anymore because we only have a van and we can get all six of us in right. there, but uh, we can't bring all the camping gear. So this for us is our, our week, you know, they come for the better part of a week, uh, you know, a five midday week, uh, and uh, they love it. They sit out and play games. They do the activities and they do costuming. They bake bread. We've got a bread oven. So they love breaking homemade bread and using that oven um, and just enjoy it. They're, they're a real joy. To, and and uh, we, we look forward to having our return guests come back too. And what would you say is the average length of stay for anybody that, that comes for a visit at Good Nights? Probably two two nights. Yeah, and um, we got a few people that come for for three or four nights, uh, and a lot of midweeks or one nights. But generally, it's about you know two to three nights. Because a lot of people come for the weekend, of course, because that's when the medieval feast is included in their stay. So if they come out during the week, it's a bit less expensive, but there's no feast involved. So you still get your breakfast. You get a wonderful breakfast brought right to your tent by. By Sir Daniel smiling away. <laughs> I love that. The other thing that really people really love is is uh, is the archery and the swords, um, and so that's another element that they can't get, uh, you know, that many other places. People love the archery. That's definitely our most um, enjoyed activity is the archery. So, t- so like, talk talk to me about that because I find that so interesting. You're right. I can't just go pick up a sword anywhere um uh, or or even shoot a bow and arrow anywhere so where do you get where do you get the weapons from well we um there are places that you can buy them in you know on the internet the swords and stuff dan has most of the ones that he needs but you know the archery is a bit interesting because so we get our bows from in uh, someone hand makes them for us in the states and we get children's and we get adults bows and for a long time, um, I was doing archery for many years, and actually didn't ever get too good at it. <laughs> and I went to an uh-huh. I went to an event in actually Pennsylvania a few years ago, 
And I was talking to this person who actually makes bows. And he said, the reason it's not working for you is you're using a long bow, which are about five to six feet tall. So imagine that sitting in a wheelchair and you're trying to, you know, get this string. So uh, he said, you need a Mongolian horse bow, which makes perfect sense because they are recurve and they're meant to be shot from the a horse. So for me, my horse is my ah. scooter and that's how I shoot. And I've actually gotten a whole lot better at it. <laughs> no stars or anything, but, and for our guests, anybody that gets a um, bullseye, I, we, I hand make a nice uh, lanyard for them with um, some leather on it. And they love that. I mean, they never take it off the whole time they're here if they want it. It's very prestigious. <laughs> yeah. and, and Linda teaches most of the archery, mm -hmm. which is really interesting. And people look and say, well, this is really unique. I mean, where else can you get tart archery from someone in a wheelchair? And she's good at it. Yeah. And she people and she's good at teaching it too. And so back to your other question about the swords. So the weapons, I've I've been full metal contact kind of fighting for years. I've been done long sword and broadsword for uh probably thirty years. Uh, and so I have uh, several full suits of armor, and I, I I used to compete a lot more. I'm I'm doing more teaching these days than fighting. But I still get uh, get to swing swords and get into a, a tournament once or twice a year, um, and this is not you know scripted choreography type kind of stuff. This is like full out fighting where you know you're trying to hit hit the guy fairly fairly good to make sure that they they get a blow. And so uh, I, I I don't teach I teach that occasionally. I have a class called a knight's class, so people can sign up for that. that's a longer class and it gets more in depth. But we provide a free. Uh, what I call the swords and chivalry class, where where kids of all ages get to learn how to hold a sword, uh, how to swing it, and I teach them a lot about the values uh, of chivalry and what it is to be a knight. Uh, because I call myself Sir Daniel, but I've actually have been knighted by this uh, society that we belong to, and so we had to go through the whole process of being knighted and being uh, uh, worthy of being a knight. And so uh, that's a, that's kind of another unique thing. I mean, we, again, being taught sword play uh, by a real knight, that's something that I think most people would find pretty interesting. And getting to handle this real swords and real armor, too. Yeah, that is super unique. And I, you know, the, as, a, as an actor myself, um, a blind actor at that, but the only weaponry I've ever held is uh, stage weaponry. And it's it's not the same impact because they're often made out of materials that simulate things like steel because they're meant not to hurt folks. Um, and so, you know, I, I can't even imagine what the actual weight of a real sword might be and to have been a knight in battle having to wield a sword. There, I've done stage work too. And, and uh, the, you know, the swords that we use for our combat are historically as accurate as we can get with the modern materials. And so they're not, people are always surprised by how light the swords are. They think of a broadsword as, you know, big and heavy and iron and, you know, weighing five or 10 pounds and you can't swing it very long, but it's really an extension of your arm. And so it has to be balanced enough that it feels good and you can swing it for a long period of time. Obviously, you had need to build up the muscles and, and build it up. So when we do our sword class, we use we use for the kids, we use what we call wooden wasters, which are a wooden sword. So they still have some weight to them. They still can hurt themselves, but we treat them 
we, we teach them how to use the weapon, whether it's a wooden sword, a stick, or a metal sword with respect, because that's the first thing you need to learn. This is a weapon. It's meant to hurt, but you're not out there to hurt somebody. So you folks are all located in Alberta. So I'm going to let you share with us a little bit about the location that you're in, the environment. And then I, I just, my big question is, why this idea? Where did this come from? Because it seems so unique to me and something that is not, you know, you just don't find this everywhere. So first of all, where where do we find you? And why this Renaissance, you know, bed and breakfast kind of idea? Where did that come from? I'll answer that one first. Uh, Dan and I met in high school, so about grade 11. And then that particular year in grade 12, the next year, we had the opportunity to do a trip to England and part of Wales with a school. And so the teachers went along as chaperones. And so we went to a castle in Wales and we had a, you know, the big five course medieval feast. We were all dressed up for it. And that was it. We were smitten. We just knew we had to do this forever. So we came back and we've all, we for 25 years, we've just kind of done medieval events. But finally, we, um, we used to go to Ren Fairs too. And people would walk into our tent and their jaw would drop and they would say, do you really get to sleep in this? And after hearing that over a hundred times, we looked around because we take it for granted. Yes, I have a four poster canopy bed and I sleep in it, but not everybody's has that idea of what they're going to see inside the tent. So we thought, you know what? We've got all these tents. We have almost 20 acres of land because we live out in rural Alberta. So where we are is about an hour from the Calgary airport, about an hour from Red Deer and two and a half from Edmonton. So we're just near Three Hills. We're 10 kilometers south of Three Hills. So there's one kilometer of gravel road to get to us. That's it. So we just decided we've got the land, we've got all this stuff, we have all this medieval stuff. So why not just open this up and see if people are would be wanting to come and stay? And we were totally unprepared for how many people, um, you know, just they wanted to stay, they wanted to do the activities, they want to have the medieval experience. So I think we're going to be doing it forever. Dan will be, you know, doing his sword until he's 90, I think. That's right. Even, you bet. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's it's fun, and it, one of the other things that we had that we didn't really put a lot of value on until we started doing this was we had these years of experience um, in in the medieval and this, this knowledge that we built up, um, and a passion for that, and a passion for hosting that we didn't really recognize until we started doing this. And people said, "You're really good at this," and yeah, well, I guess we are because people love what we do. And so we just started doing it. It was a crazy idea. Yeah. We built up, we, we put in our first year when we opened after we got our, our permits to do it. Uh, we built the whole place and had it open our first guest within six weeks. Um, so, and we took it on and we made sure that all the tents had electricity to them. We have running water at the, at the, the bathrooms. Our bathrooms, we have en suites. Every tent has an en suite. We call them throne rooms. Um, and uh, then, so we, we wanted to make sure that, that we had the creature comforts there uh, wasn't just going to be sleeping on a cot or sleeping on the floor. We wanted all the tents to have nice beds. So they all have queen size beds in them. We've got 
the, the our, our first tent that we had as our personal tent. And when the talks about a four four poster bed, this is a really fancy four poster canopy bed that I first built for Linda when we were part of the medieval clubs going around doing um, shows because. You know, I didn't want her sleeping on the floor anymore. So I built this fancy bed and said, this is my present to you. You get to sleep in this really nice bed. Uh, that's quite a lovely, a lovely love story that uh, that you've worked into a, a, a business that seems to be flourishing. And I'm so excited to hear that. And and uh, as as we come to the end of this podcast, folks, folks, I'm going to switch things up completely on you because um, we're going to play a little mixed bag before I let you go today. So I'm going to give you 25 seconds and uh, three questions, and I'm just going to get you to answer them sort of first thing that pops into your head. So this may sort of be around, uh, I don't know. Well, uh, okay. I'm going to just throw this one at you. Um, and either one of you can answer it or both of you. If you were to want to meet one person from history, alive or dead, who would that be? Wow. That's a tough one. <laughs> yeah. You only get one. Uh... I would love to meet Gandhi. If I could in the in the past, I really think he did so much wonderful stuff for his people that he'd probably be very interesting to talk to. Uh, I think that's a great choice. All right. I'm going to throw question number two at you then. This one might be a little simpler. What's your favorite ice cream flavor? Oh, this is one we differ on. <laughs> I'm a vanilla. I'm a vanilla man. He'll go to a place that has 100 flavors and still have vanilla. That just vanilla every time. It just breaks my heart. But I am definitely a mint chocolate chip girl. I'm on your side, Lady Linda. Lint, mint chocolate <laughs> chip for me too. <laughs> oh yeah, all the way. <laughs> and the final question is really, uh, you know, you get a twenty-five percent chance. What's your favorite season of the year? Spring is mine most yes, definitely. Definitely spring. Love spring. This has been so much fun. I'm so excited uh, when the pandemic is is not a reality for us anymore. I'm going to consider uh, looking into booking a night or two or maybe more since I'm traveling all the way from Vancouver. Um, so where can folks find you all on the big www? Well, you can find us at uh, goodnights.ca. That's nights with a K. And that's our website. We're really loaded up all the information people need on what we do, what we offer, and how to find us and how to book. Uh, we're also on on Facebook and uh, Instagram at uh, Good Nights Canada. And uh, we're trying to get on some other stuff as far as well as in Pinterest and that. But right now, those are our two main social media things. And uh, and they can sign up for a newsletter. We have a newsletter that people can get keep informed of what we're doing. Before we say goodbye for today, I wanted to share with you this quote by Pablo Picasso. Everything you can imagine is real. Thanks for listening to Accessing Art with Amy. This podcast was produced by me, Amy Amanti, with technical production by Sam Robinson. Our manager at AMI-audio is Andy Frank. If you like what you've listened to today, we would really appreciate some feedback. So please reach out to us by email at feedback at ami.ca or leave us a message by calling 1-866-509-4545. Thanks again to my special guests today, Sir Daniel and Lady Linda. Keep exploring. See you next time. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, 
visit AMI.ca.